The book of Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi around 61 AD. As part of the expansive Roman Empire, the community in Philippi was facing constant persecution because of their allegiance to Jesus over Caesar. Writing from prison, Paul thanks God for the Philippians' generosity in taking care of him. Paul expresses his confidence that the life-transforming work that God had begun in them would continue on to completion. Paul points to the unfavorable circumstances of his imprisonment and assures the church that his current situation is being leveraged for God's purposes. Paul affirms that whether he is set free to continue his ministry by planting churches or is killed for his radical testimony, serving Jesus is worth his suffering. Paul refers to the Philippians' own persecution, claiming that through their struggles, they too are living out the message of Jesus, emptying themselves in faithfulness to Christ's example. Paul encourages the church to realize their heavenly citizenship, trusting in God to bring healing, justice, and peace to their hearts as they minister to a broken world. Would you pray with me? Oh God, I am just reminded right now of how much people need to hear from you more than they need to hear from me. So Holy Spirit, would you speak? Would you open our minds up to understand the truth? Would you open up our hearts to love it? And would you allow us to live in light of it? And so Spirit, would you speak through me or in spite of me, but speak to everyone sitting here right now. I pray in Jesus' beautiful name, amen. So last year, December 17th, the Vikings played a significant game. Now, here's one thing you learn if you're new to Rock Hill. If Pastor Mike is preaching, chances are you're going to get a Lord of the Rings quotation or illustration. If I'm preaching, the Vikings are often fair game. Well, if you're a Viking fan, you know what bad games look like. And and at halftime, the score was Colts 33 Vikings, zero. You know where I'm going with this, right? Okay, I, I've, I've sat through bad Vikings games. This, the first half was about as bad as it got. The Vikings were supposed to be the better team, and yet everything they tried failed. Everything that the Colts tried seemed to turn to gold, and it was just a mess. Like, if you decided, what am I doing with my Saturday, Sunday afternoon? I, I have better places to go or better things that I could be doing. You probably, normally wouldn't be wrong. But then the second half happened. And the Vikings got a couple touchdowns and kept stopping the Colts. And fast forward two hours, and the final score was Vikings 39, Colts 36 in overtime, the largest comeback in NFL history. Perspective is an interesting thing, isn't it? If you were to go back and rewatch that game, you wouldn't be white-knuckling it. In fact, if you're a Vikings fan, I'm sorry, by the way, if you're a Vikings fan, like me, long-suffering, you would go back and watch that first half and be like, oh, comedy of errors, isn't that cute? I know how this ends. It, it wouldn't stress you out, but you would just enjoy it because you know the final score. You know how it ends. You know that the Vikings win. And so that changes your perspective on each individual play, doesn't it? In the same way as Christians, we know the end of the story, don't we? We know that Jesus wins, and because he wins, we win with him. And living in this reality changes our perspective on life, doesn't it? 
In nowhere is this more apparent than in Paul's letter to the Philippian church while he's sitting in that prison cell right there. The the Mamertine prison in Rome was where most scholars think that he penned the letter to the Philippians from. A letter that its tone is remarkably filled with joy in part because Paul has this perspective on life. So Philippians chapter 1, we're going to start verse 12 and go to verse 26. It's an incredible passage. Let me read it for you. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened has, to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are so much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you, have, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is God's word. I don't know if you know this or not, but this is the first pras- passage that I ever preached a sermon in a church. I was 19 years old, a freshman at Northwestern College, and over Christmas break my dad invited me to preach at the church I grew up in. They're here, and they heard that sermon. And just so you know, in case you're wondering, it wasn't very good. It wasn't. There was a lot of passion, maybe even a little bit of yelling, but it lacked a lot of insight and nuance, but it was filled with passion and joy for Christ. My prayer over the years is that I wouldn't lose that passion for Christ the sense in which to live is to live for Jesus. And if God calls me home, it's even better because I get to go be with him. But that now at 41, I would have a much better perspective to preach on this passage than I did at 19. Why? Because in it all, I've seen that God is faithful. In it all, I've seen that this is true and that this Christian perspective on life really does change everything. See, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. It means to live for Christ is fruitful gospel ministry for us. A pouring out of our lives for the sake of others. That they might be built up and know Jesus. And to die, well that actually ends up being better for us. Because we get to go be with Jesus. 
And that, my friends, sets us free. Having this perspective on life causes us to rejoice regardless of the circumstances. And the same perspective is offered to everyone who is in Christ. That not only Paul, some super Christian, some apostle who writes Holy Scripture can feel this way and live this way, but that you and I can actually live this way as well with a consuming passion for our life to make Christ known. Imagine picking up your pen in a prison cell and writing a letter with this kind of tone. It's only possible if you gain this perspective on life that allows you to roll with the ups and downs because you know how the story ends. If there's one phrase that I want you to memorize and maybe use it as a mantra this week, it's not to live as Christ and to die as gain. That's the, that's the understanding that he comes to. But actually the phrase is a little fragment at the end of chapter, or sorry, end of verse 18, and it's this. Yes, and I will rejoice. Can you say that with me? Yes, and I will rejoice. Actually, turn to your neighbor and say, yes, and I will rejoice. You guys are probably like, is it Youth Sunday here? This feels like a youth group lesson. No, that's today's big idea that I want you to remember and repeat over and over, no matter the circumstance that you find yourself in this week, say, yes, and I will rejoice. Whether you lose your freedom, your reputation, or even your life, you can rejoice. And that's actually the structure of this particular letter. Verses 12 to 14 offer an interesting perspective on freedom, don't they? Verses 15 to 18, an interesting perspective on our reputation. And verses 19 to 26, a perspective on life and death that fills us with joy. So let's look at each for a moment. Whether I'm in prison or I am free, my consuming aim is to make Christ known. That's Paul's perspective. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, I want you to know, Paul is not just a happy talker. You know what I mean when I say that, right? Like the person who, like, we've all seen this meme, it's fine, it's fine, just don't pay attention to what's going around, just this naivety of like, I'll be all right. it'll be all right. Or maybe someone who just tries to put a happy, positive spin on things regardless of the circumstances. No, Paul actually believes this in light of the circumstances that include eternity. The consuming passion of his life is to make Jesus known to those who have never heard of Jesus before and never heard the gospel, even if that meant doing prison ministry from the inside. Why? Because the news of salvation in Jesus Christ is the best news you could ever receive or you could ever share with another human being. The reality that you and I can be reconciled to God, the relationship can be restored. No longer can, are we in rebellion against him, but we can be reconciled to him. That our sin can be forgiven and our, our debts wiped away. We can be made clean and that we can be set free to not serve ourselves, but serve others on the basis, not of what we do for God and how we perform, but on the basis of what has been done for us by the Lord Jesus Christ. See, news is not something you do, it's something you believe or you don't believe. And this is incredible news, unbelievable news, gospel news. 
That Jesus lived the life that we should have lived but failed to live. He died the death that we deserve to die. And in doing so became our substitute in every imaginable way. The substitute life lived a righteous life that was required of us, but all of us have fallen short of. So that when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we're actually judged on the basis of his righteous life rather than our own. We get his resume when we stand before the great judgment seat of the Lord. That he is our substitute death, our sacrifice. That he dies in our place, taking the full penalty that you and I deserve for our sin. He becomes our substitute so that God upholds his justice and also releases mercy and forgiveness to sinners like you and me. And that he becomes our victory, that through his resurrection, he defeats Satan's sin and even death itself, providing hope for us that, that his victory is also now our victory and that, that his victory will one day be final in the end. And we will stand with him with renewed, resurrected bodies and he'll make all things new. See, we put our faith in what Jesus has done and all of that transfers to us. We get off the treadmill of religion and workspace righteousness and we simply receive as a gift the salvation provided by Jesus. Now if that's true, and it is, then it should also be the consuming passion of our lives to not just receive that news, but to share it as broadly as possible. This was a marked change for the Apostle Paul. He was actually a persecutor of Christians and he used to trust in his own sense of self-righteousness he said, you know, when it came to the religion game, I was pretty good. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Jew of Jew, of the tribe of Benjamin. That's pretty good. I could, I could trace my lineage all the way back. Re regarding the law of God, I was a Pharisee. I, I like held myself to the highest possible standard that you could hide your, hold yourself to. And, and as regard to righteousness under that law, faultless. I had a, I had a squeaky clean resume. And Paul starts laying this stuff down in chapter 3 of Philippians. But then he turns and he reflects on what he used to find his righteousness in, on what he used to value so highly, and this is what he says. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage. That's a nice word for what the Greek word actually is. So that I could gain Christ and be found in him. Not having, um, be found in him. Uh, I no longer count my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. See, it's because Jesus rescued and saved him while he was hell-bent on destroying all of these Jesus communities. Because God showed grace to this remarkably self-righteous sinner, that he can't imagine doing anything else with his life other than making Jesus known to those who have never heard of him before. 
And so for him, that meant that if he was going to be free, that he's going to travel around the Roman Empire telling people about Jesus, planting little Jesus communities called churches, building these Christians up in the faith, and then moving on to the next city to tell others about the salvation found in Jesus and leaving the the, the job to, to be finished by the churches that he started. Or... It meant if he was sitting in a prison cell, he's going to tell the prison guards about Jesus and spend his time writing letters back to these churches to encourage them to finish the job that he started and tell the rest of their community about Jesus. That's what he's going to do. And so he has this interesting perspective, even on his imprisonment, and he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And it's happened in two ways. First, Jesus is now known among the imperial guards. Caesar's bodyguards, his palace guards, some of them now know about Jesus, and even more than that, some of them even know Jesus because I got arrested and they're watching me and I told them about him. And second, other Christians have grown in their boldness to share Jesus with other people. See, it's created a vacuum, me being in prison, and so other people have had to step up and do the preaching. And so in light of all of this, yes, and I will rejoice even though I'm in prison. Say it with me. Yes, I will rejoice. That's also created a little bit of a problem in the church when it comes to his reputation. There are some who, seeing the vacuum that he left, seeing the opportunity they have to take a more prominent role in the church, is leveraging Paul's imprisonment and shame to their own benefit and gain. They're using Paul's imprisonment to advance their own cause, to build their own status or brand, to be somebody in the church at his expense. In a lot of ways, trashing his reputation. Now, we might be tempted to think, this has got to be the final straw for him. I mean, it's one thing to be sitting in prison for the defense of the gospel, making a case before Caesar of the legitimacy of these Jesus communities so that things will go well for Christians around the Roman Empire. Like, they have to see that what he's doing is important, right? But now he gets a little bit of friendly fire. I don't know if you guys feel this way, but, like, we expect to have shots fired from from the outside, don't we? We expect enemy lines to push back and fight back and fire back. But what we don't expect is someone in the foxhole with us to turn the gun on us and shoot. That's what really hurts. It's not the shot that you take. It's the proximity from where the shot came that really hurts. That's where you feel the sting of betrayal the most. You want to talk about church hurt? The Apostle Paul can talk about church hurt And yet, even in the midst of that, his perspective on it, his perspective on his own reputation being trashed and others being gained is really unique. Look at his perspective. Verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. They understand the importance of what I'm doing. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment, to pile on. What then? What do I do with this? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. He says, you know what? At the end of the day, Jesus is being preached. Even from bad motives, and because of that, 
I, I have nothing to do but rejoice. He's being preached at the expense of his own reputation, driven by other selfish ambitions, seeking to rub it in his face. And yet even in that, Paul rejoices. Why? Because Jesus is being named. He's being preached, and that's his consuming passion. Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice, and I will rejoice. For some of you, your greatest fear is losing your freedom. But Paul, even when sitting in a prison cell, is completely free. For others, it's losing your reputation that you've worked so hard to build. And that means very little to Paul compared to Jesus being named. For others, it's losing your life. But for Paul, none of these things can rob him or steal joy from him. He continues as he reflects on life and death. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. The word for deliverance there is, is salvation. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you will have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. I'm coming back. I, I'm convinced. Paul says, make no mistake about it, I will be saved, I will be deliver, delivered. And it's my eager expectation that I'll no longer be ashamed or scorned or imprisoned. But my greatest desire, whether I live or die, whether I'm free or imprisoned, whether I have a good or a poor reputation, is that Christ will be honored and proclaimed as the sufficient Savior. To live as Christ and to die as gain. What a perspective. If I'm going to live, it's going to mean fruitful ministry and my life being all about Jesus. And if I die, even better, I get to be with Jesus. So let's pause and just think about these realities for a second. When Christians die, they go to be with Jesus. In a sense, they go to heaven. Now, this is not the final state that we read about in Revelation where heaven comes down to a renewed earth where we're given new physical resurrected bodies that are free from sin and like Jesus' prototype. That's still to come in the future on the day of salvation and resurrection. But in a very real way, we are told that when Christians die, we go to be with Jesus in a kind of intermediate state, a sense of heaven, as it were. And Paul doesn't mince words about this. He said, that would be way better than my current reality. I want to go be with Jesus. See, on the day of his death, he would have run the race. He, the fight would be over for him. He would have kept the faith because the Holy Spirit has preserved him in the faith. His faith will become sight, and he'll get to be with Jesus, the one that he has longed for most. Struggle will be over. Do you feel that? Do you sense the longing in his voice for that day that it is better to be with Jesus and the struggle to be over? Some of you guys know this longing really well. You do. Maybe you've been walking with Jesus for a long time and age is caught up with you. It's hard. You feel deep in your bones that you are not what you used to be. Your mind is not what it used to be. Now, I, I played softball for the first time this year last week, and let me just tell you, I am not what I used to be, okay? This 41-year-old body is still sore. 
and not as quick or good. And I'm only 41. There's something about sin that just eats away and, and, and robs of, of our youth and our vitality. And, and when you've lived that and you feel your body begin to like fall apart, there's this longing in you of like, oh, I'm just ready to be with Jesus. I'm just ready to go to him and, and, and to put this body behind me. And then there's the spiritual or the soul level struggle when you sin again and you know better. You know how stupid it is. And you think, am I ever going to be rid of this? Am I ever going to do what I most want to do? And you long, oh Jesus, wouldn't it be great if I could just be with you and the struggle would be over? There's some of you who hear this and you're like, yeah, that's what I want. I just want to be with Jesus. But then there's, there's others here this morning who, who've probably taken it a step further. And, and you think, I just want to be with Jesus. I don't really want to live anymore. See, there's so much sadness and brokenness around, and there's so much sadness and brokenness in you that you're almost at a point of feeling defeated. And so when you hear this, to live as Christ and to die as gain, you almost think secretly, you know, that sounds pretty good to me. Almost to the point where you welcome death and you think, I just want the struggle to be over. If that's you this morning, can I just tell you, that's not where the Apostle Paul is at when he's speaking like this. He, he's, he's not writing this letter from a posture of feeling defeated by his sin and with the crushing weight of light. Sure, sure, sure he wants to be with Jesus, but not in a defeated way, in a logical way. Of, well, of course it would be better to be with him. There's hope. The struggle will be over. But his conclusion is, but it would be better by far for me to stay because God still has work for me to do. There's more work to be done yet, and so I press on and I continue. See, as Christians, we do not fear death, but neither do we embrace it. Death is an enemy. It is a distortion. It is the result of the curse of sin. It isn't natural. It isn't good. And it's not part of some nebulous circle of life. It is an enemy that has been defeated by Jesus and will be the final enemy that will ultimately be defeated by Jesus. And so this idea that we need to make peace with death is not a Christian ideal. It's not. It's unnatural and it's wrong and we should feel right to think those things. We shouldn't rejoice at a funeral, even if they're with Jesus, because that's not how God intended us to be. Nor should we ever get to a point where we're so defeated where we just think, Jesus, I want to be with you. I know there are some in here that are tempted to give up who want it to end, but hear me on this. You are still here. And what that means then is that you are here because God has work for you to do. He has a purpose for your life that is about you, but it is bigger than you. And if you're in this point of feeling defeated, you need to get hold of that. That your life matters. It has purpose and meaning. And these words here are not meant for you to give up. But rather to say, okay, if I'm going to continue on, that's going to mean fruitful labor for me. So God, what do you have? See, Christians, we're actually immortal until God calls us home. Until he's done with us. And then he will. And we're not in determination of that. 
He is. That takes the pressure off, doesn't it? Your life is probably still going to be hard, but it will be fruitful, so don't give up, don't give in, and remember your life matters. So Paul says, if I'm going to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Verse 24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account, so I'm convinced of this, I'll stay, and we'll make it good. Guys, this is what it means to live for Christ. If I have breath, then it is for Jesus' sake. God has work for me to do. Paul says, I'm convinced that I have work for your progress and joy in the faith so that you'll have ample cause to glory, not in me, but in Jesus Christ. And so I rejoice, I remain, I continue. Is it possible for us to have this perspective today? Absolutely it is. See, the same Jesus that saved the Apostle Paul has saved us. The same Holy Spirit that led and encouraged and empowered Paul to live this way now lives in all of those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus in faith. And so we absolutely can live with this perspective because we still have the Holy Spirit. So let me close with this. What do you fear the most? What do you fear the most? Do you, do you, do you fear losing your freedom the most? Well, the reality of the gospel is that Christ has set you free whether you're moving around freely or sitting in a prison cell. That picture there of the prison cell, that's where Paul wrote this letter from. It's incredible that the person sitting there in that prison cell is simultaneously the freest person imaginable. You sense the irony? See, freedom does not come from our circumstances. It comes from a person, and his name is Jesus. He frees us from the work of trying to justify ourselves by our achievement and our goodness. He frees us from the need to have all of our plans and dreams work out perfectly because our ultimate future is secure. He frees us from sin so that even though we might sit in a prison cell, we can be free. Don't you want that kind of freedom? I do. When you have it, you can say things like, yeah, and I will rejoice. Or maybe you're, you fear the most losing your reputation. The, the truth of the gospel is that Jesus has given you a new and a better reputation. You are a child of God. You are a son or daughter of the king. You are the bride of Christ. And in that, your reputation, your identity is secure, not in what you do, but what in he has accomplished. It, it, in fact, if that's true, then it doesn't really matter what other people think, does it? So many of you live your life paralyzed by the fear of what others might think of you. You can't imagine doing something that would cause you to disappoint someone or lose your hard-earned reputation. But sometimes those things are just out of your control. However, if the only one whose verdict over your life has already spoken, and this is what he said, well done, good and faithful servant, Enter into the joy of your master, or you are my son with whom I am well pleased. Then I guess it really doesn't matter all that much whether we're honored or disparaged in this life, does it? And so even if people wrongly trash you and tell all kinds of misleading stories about you, you can say, yes, and Okay, I thought that was going to go better. Let's try that again. You can say yes and... I will okay, one, one more. What about even losing your life? 
Well, if Jesus has secured your eternity, then you no longer need to fear death. In fact, it's better for you to go and be with Jesus than to remain here, and that makes you fearless. That makes you free. That frees you to rejoice. This is the kind of perspective that allows the circumstances of life to come and go without riling us up too much. I get it. Some of you right now are sitting at halftime of the Vikings game, being down 33 to nothing. It feels hopeless. But we could pull out that game film and watch it with a sense of pure joy and anticipation because we know the end. And our perspective on it has changed. Guys, I don't want you to white-knuckle your circumstances day in and day out because, Christian, you know the end. And so you can say, regardless of the circumstances, yes, there you go, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and for how it provokes us and challenges us and encourages us. Thank you, Jesus, that in the end you win. And because you win, we win. And because you are righteous, we are counted as righteous. And because you are the perfect sacrifice, we can be washed and forgiven and made new. And so, Jesus, it is you that we delight in. It is you we live for. To live is to live for you. And to die is to be with you. And that's gain. So, God, would you make us fearless? Would you make us free? Would you allow us to rejoice regardless of the circumstances? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.